This is section 15 of Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 119, Italian Days. The Clemens party wandered down into Italy, to the lakes, Venice, Florence, Rome, loitering through the galleries, gathering here and there beautiful furnishings, pictures, marbles, and the like, for the Hartford home. In Venice they bought an old careen bed, a massive regal affair with serpentine columns surmounted by singularly graceful cupids, and with other cupids sporting on the headboard, the work of some artist who had been dust three centuries, maybe, for this bed had come out of an old Venetian palace, dismantled and abandoned. It was a furniture with a long story, and the years would add mightily to its memories. It would become a stately institution in the Clemens household. The cupids on the posts were removable, and one of the highest privileges of childhood would be to occupy that bed and have down one of the cupids to play with. It was necessary to be ill to acquire that privilege, not violently and dangerously ill, but interestingly so, ill enough to be propped up with pillows and have one's meals served on a tray, with dolls and picture-books handy, and among them a beautiful rosewood cupid who had kept dimpled and dainty for so many, many years. They spent three weeks in Venice, a dreamlike experience, especially for the children who were on the water most of the time, and became fast friends with their gondolier, who taught them some Italian words, then a week in Florence and a fortnight in Rome. From the notebook, Bay. When the waiter brought my breakfast this morning I spoke to him in Italian. Mama. What did you say? Bay. I said, Polly vous Francais? M. What does it mean? B. I don't know. What does it mean, Susie? S. It means Polly wants a cracker. Clemens discovered that in twelve years his attitude had changed somewhat concerning the old masters. He no longer found the bright new copies an improvement on the originals, though the originals still failed to wake his enthusiasm. Mrs. Clemens and Miss Spaulding spent long hours wandering down avenues of art, accompanied by him on occasion, though not always willingly. He wrote his sorrow to Twitchell. I do wish you were in Rome to do my sightseeing for me. Rome interests me as much as East Hartford could, and no more. That is, the Rome which the average tourist feels an interest in. There are other things here which stir me enough to make life worth living. Livy and Clara are having a royal time worshipping the old masters, and I as good a time gritting my ineffectual teeth over them. Once when Sarah Orney Jewett was with the party he remarked that if the old masters had labeled their fruit, one wouldn't be so likely to mistake pears for turnips. Youth, said Mrs. Clemens gravely, if you do not care for these masterpieces yourself, you might at least consider the feelings of others. 
and Miss Jewett, regarding him severely, added in her quaint Yankee fashion, "'Now you've been spoken to!' He felt duly reprimanded, but his taste did not materially reform. He realized that he was no longer in a proper frame of mind to write of general sightseeing. One must be eager, verdant, to write happily the story of travel. Replying to a letter from Howells on the subject, he said, "'I wish I could give those sharp satires on European life which you mention, but, of course, a man can't write successful satire except he be in a calm, judicial good humor, whereas I hate travel, and I hate hotels, and I hate the opera, and I hate the old masters. In truth, I don't ever seem to be in a good enough humor with anything to satirize it. No, I want to stand up before it and curse it and foam at the mouth, or take a club and pound it to rags and pulp. I have got in two or three chapters about Wagner's operas and managed to do it without showing temper, but the strain of another such effort would burst me. Clemens became his own courier for a time in Italy, and would seem to have made more of a success of it than he did a good many years afterward, if we may believe the story he has left us of his later attempt. "'Am a shining success as a courier,' he records, by the use of Franks. "'Have learned how to handle the railway guide intelligently and with confidence.' He declares that he will have no more couriers but possibly he could have employed one to advantage on the trip out of Italy, for it was a desperately hard one, with bad connections and delayed telegrams, when after thirty-six hours' weary, continuous traveling they arrived at last in Munich in a drizzle and fog, and were domiciled in their winter quarters at number 1A Karlstrasse, they felt that they had reached the home of desolation itself the very throne of human misery. And the rooms were so small, the conveniences so meagre, and the porcelain stove was grim, ghastly, dismal, intolerable. So Livy and Clara Spaulding sat down forlorn and cried, and I retired to a private place to pray. By and by we all retired to our narrow German beds, and when Livy and I had finished talking across the room it was all decided that we should rest twenty-four hours, then pay whatever damages were required, and straightway fly to the south of France. The rooms had been engaged by letter months before of their proprietress, Fraulein Dahlweiner, who had met them at the door with a lantern in her hand, full of joy in their arrival and faith in her ability to make them happy. It was a faith that was justified. Next morning, when they all woke, rested, the weather had cleared, there were bright fires in the rooms, the world had taken on a new aspect. Fraulein Dahlweiner, the pathetic, hard-working little figure, became almost beautiful in their eyes in her efforts for their comfort. 
she arranged larger rooms and better conveniences for them their location was central and there was a nearby park they had no wish to change clemens in his letter to howells boasts that he brought the party through from rome himself and that they never had so little trouble before but in looking over this letter thirty years later he commented probably a lie he secured a room some distance away for his work but then could not find his swiss notebook he wrote twichell that he had lost it and that after all he might not be obliged to write a volume of travels but the notebook turned up and the work on the new book proceeded for a time it went badly he wrote many chapters only to throw them aside he had the feeling that he had somehow lost the knack of descriptive narrative he had become as it seemed too didactic he thought his description was inclined to be too literal his humor manufactured these impressions passed by and by interest developed and with it enthusiasm and confidence in a letter to twichell he reported his progress i was about to write to my publisher and propose some other book when the confounded thing the notebook turned up and down went my heart into my boots but there was now no excuse so i went solidly to work tore up a great part of the manuscript written in heidelberg wrote and tore up continued to write and tear up and at last reward of patient and noble persistence my pen got the old swing again since then i'm glad that providence knew better what to do with the swiss notebook than i did further along in the same letter there breaks forth a true heart answer to that voice of the alps which once heard is never wholly silent oh switzerland the further it recedes into the enriching haze of time the more intolerably delicious the charm of it and the cheer of it and the glory and majesty and solemnity and pathos of it grow those mountains had a soul they thought they spoke and what a voice it was and how real deep down in my memory it is sounding yet alp calleth unto alp that stately old scriptural wording is the right one for god's alps and god's ocean how puny we were in that awful presence and how painless it was to be so how fitting and right it seemed and how stingless was the sense of our unspeakable insignificance and lord how pervading were the repose and peace and blessedness that poured out of the heart of the invisible great spirit of the mountains now what is it there are mountains and mountains and mountains in this world but only these take you by the heartstrings i wonder what the secret of it is well time and time and again it has seemed to me that i must drop everything and flee to switzerland once more it is a longing a deep strong 
tugging longing that is the word we must go again joe end of chapter 119 italian days read by john greenman